Children, um, sometimes we make promises, right? <clears throat> you all know what a promise is. I promise to do such and such. It's kind of a, the kind of adult way to say, uh, to describe a promise is it's solemn. It's serious. It shows you I'm being serious about what I'm saying when I make a promise. Well, perhaps, um, your mom or your dad or somebody you, you love dearly has, uh, made a, and who you trust, has made a promise to you at some point in the past, um, maybe even recently. Um, just as, a, as an example of possible promises you might have heard, uh, you might have heard from your mom or your dad or maybe a, a grandparent, um, I promise that we will go to ne- uh, Six Flags next summer, even though we didn't go this summer and we had hoped to, but I promise we will go to Six Flags next summer. Maybe you've heard something like that. Maybe it wasn't Six Flags. Maybe it was the beach. Maybe it was Florida. Who knows? But maybe you heard a promise something like that. Uh, or maybe you heard a promise something like this. Well, uh, from from a parent or a grandparent. I promise that I'll bake you your favorite cake on your birthday. I know I didn't bake it this time, but next time I promise when it's your birthday, I will bake you your favorite cake. Maybe you heard that from your dad. Or maybe it was your mom. Anyway, those are promises we make, and and you have heard from uh, probably from somebody who you love and who who you know uh, is trustworthy. And when promises like that are made by someone whom you trust, it makes you confident that what that person promised you is going to take place, right? Because there was it wasn't just said to you, well, yeah, we uh, we uh, we'll probably go to Six Flags next summer, or yeah, I'll probably uh, bake your cake at some point. No, a promise was made. And so that strengthens your hope, your confidence, your assurance that, yes, that will happen at some point because somebody who I trust has made this promise to me, a serious promise to me. Well, I bring that up to you because, children, God, the Father, the first person of the Godhead, the first person of God, He, in this text... Uh, we are reminded by this text, has made a promise. Now, God makes many promises. All of his word is essentially when God says something is going to happen, um, it is a promise from God. Uh, so all of God's word is really promising us that these things are true. God is promising us. But in in the case that's described in this passage, God is making a special, special promise. And he made this promise, God the Father did, to God the Son. When God the Son, after dying and being buried and rising again from the dead, when Jesus ascended up into heaven and offered his sacrifice of himself in the heavenly holy of holies to God the Father, God made this promise to him, which is actually recorded back in uh, Psalm 110. And the writer to the Hebrews here is talking about that in this passage. So listen as we talk about that promise that God the Father, uh, an oath really, which is another word for a very serious or solemn promise, made to not only God the Son, but to all of us as well. Beginning in verse 11, uh, where we started reading, um, uh, where I started reading this morning, the text, beginning in verse 11 and continuing on through the end of this chapter, 
Uh, the writer of the Hebrews, we don't know who it was. Apollos is a good guess, but we don't know. But God wrote it, ultimately. Anyway, beginning in verse 11, continuing to the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews focuses his attention on Psalm 110, verse 4 of that psalm in particular, and on the tremendous light that that psalm, and particularly that verse, sheds on the nature of Jesus' high priesthood. We all need a priest. And we don't need a priest in Rome or a priest in Canterbury. We need a priest in heaven. And we've got one. If you're a Christian, you have a priest who serves on your behalf, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man exalted to the right hand of the Father. And according to Psalm 110, verse 4, according to the writer, rather, Psalm 110, verse 4, records the words that I already mentioned a moment ago, that God the Father spoke to the incarnate and risen and ascended Son at the point when Jesus appeared before the Father in the heavenly holy of holies and offered up his own life to God as a perfect, priceless, and final sacrifice for sin on behalf of you and me who are trusting in him. And God made a promise to Jesus and to all of us through that promise that he made to Jesus. Now, in verses 11 through 19 of our passage here in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, the writer argues that the Levitical or the Aaronic high priesthood, and you can call them either one, they mean essentially the same thing, Levi, Aaron was uh, from the tribe of Levi, so it's Levitical, but it's more specifically Aaronic. But the high priesthood of Aaron, the writer argues here, which was established, by the way, under the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, the Mosaic law covenant. It was established under there. The writer is arguing that that priesthood was decidedly inferior to the Melchizedekan priesthood. That's a, that's a mouthful that was established under the New Covenant administration of the One Covenant of Grace. So the Aaronic priesthood was established under the Mosaic Covenant administration, and the Melchizedekan was established under the New Covenant administration of that One Covenant of Grace. And the writer says the old one was inferior. The one, the Levitical one, was inferior. It was inferior, he says, because it failed to provide God's people down through the ages, Old and New Testament ages, with the perfection or consecration needed to qualify them to both approach God and serve God in holiness. That Old Testament priesthood failed to make God's people truly consecrated in an inner way. It was just outward consecration, if I can put it that way. On the other hand, the priest who is like Melchizedek does provide God's people with the consecration, the perfection that the other priesthood did not. And that high priest, of course, is Jesus. Jesus actually, not just ceremonially, but actually accomplished reconciliation between us and God as a result of his high priestly work. He, Jesus, has actually qualified you and me to approach God in holiness without fear of divine displeasure as we approach him, but with joy, in fact. And because of these things that Jesus has done as a Melchizedekan high priest, 
His priestly ministry is far superior to that of Aaron and all of his sons and their descendants. And the writer concludes that section, verses 1 or 11 through 19, by saying this in verses 18 and 19. I'll read it again. He says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we, New Testament saints, and all the saints, draw near to God. When he speaks, by the way, in verse 18, the writer, of the former commandment, for on the one hand there is the setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, he's referring there particularly to those elements of the Mosaic law or covenant that regulated the Aaronic high priesthood. It's, he's thinking particularly of those laws regarding the high priesthood and what that was supposed to be like and how they were supposed to dress and how they were supposed to approach God and all that kind of stuff. That's the former commandment that he says is being, was set aside in the new covenant administration, particularly those elements of the Mosaic law. But indirectly, he's saying there in verse 18, he's referring to all ceremonially, all ceremonial elements of the Old Testament law. All the ceremonies. Not just those regulating the priesthood, but indeed all of them. But he's thinking particularly here about the elements of the Mosaic law that regulated uh, the priesthood. And he said, it's, 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 he describes it as weak and useless. Very dismissive, actually. And it's useless and weak because of its inability to truly, inwardly cleanse people's hearts so that they can truly and acceptably in worship and serve God. Okay, now that's just a reminder of the uh, what's preceded us. Now we come to the uh, points that we're going to cover. And there are three points, and this is going to happen between this service this morning and the service this evening. I'm not going to give you all three points this morning. I may only give you one. I might give you two. It just kind of depends on the clock. But the rest is coming this evening, so let me urge you to consider coming back for uh, the latter part of this one sermon, which will be in two parts. But here are the three points uh, that are going to be covered at some point today. So first, we see the, the supreme efficacy uh, of Jesus' priestly mediation on your behalf is assured by the Father's oath. The supreme efficacy of Jesus' priestly mediation is assured by the Father's oath. Secondly, the ceaseless nature of Jesus' priestly mediation on your behalf is assured by His own, that is to say, Jesus' immortality. And then finally, oh, I didn't bring the final part. You'll have to come tonight for that. (laughs) I thought I had that with me, but I don't. At any rate, so those are the first two points. So let's dig into them. The supreme efficacy of Jesus' priestly mediation on your behalf is assured by an oath given by the Father. We see this in verses 20 through 22. Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, meaning this better uh, hope that we have, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed uh, became priests, the Old Testament guys, without an oath, But he, Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to him, meaning the Father, who said to Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. 
So much so, the writer says, uh, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. You could insert the word administration there, better covenant administration, to use Presbyterian kind of language. But better covenant is fine. The writer here, in verses 20 through 22, is continuing his exposition, you see, of what David said in Psalm 110, verse 4. Specific, the specific phrase uh, that the writer is unpacking from Psalm 110 for is, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. <clears throat> and what he's doing here, he makes the point that the new covenant administration of that one covenant of grace down through the ages that was first articulated in Genesis 3.15 in cryptic fashion. But that new, the new covenant administration of that covenant, the final covenant administration, has a guarantor. And it is Jesus, your high priest, is the guarantor of that covenant's efficaciousness in your life and in mine. The new covenant is the last and the best iteration of that one gracious covenant that God made with mankind in the garden after the fall. The covenant of grace that covers is the, the two, essentially two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, which includes all those administrations. The covenant of grace denotes um, the arrangement that God made to enable hell-deserving sinners such as ourselves to be forgiven by Him and brought into eternal fellowship with Him. That's what we mean when we use the language of the covenant of grace. That's what we're referring to. And it was a covenant that was administered in a number of different ways down through the ages. Different administrations. First, we have the one I already referenced, the post-fall Adamic covenant, which is the gracious covenant, not the covenant of works before the fall, but Genesis 3.15 I'm referring to. That was the first covenant administration of covenant of grace. The second administration of that covenant was the Noahic covenant. The third one was the Mosaic, excuse me, the Abrahamic. The fourth one was the Mosaic. The fifth one was the Davidic. But it reached its final and best expression, the covenant of grace did, in the new covenant administration, which the writer of Hebrews here in verse 22 calls a better covenant, meaning better than all the rest. Better because unlike the previous iterations of the covenant of grace, which were administered by way of promises and prophecies and uh, priests and sacrifices and external rituals and feast days and other types and shadows uh, of the Messiah who was yet to come at that point in time, the New Covenant administration, unlike those others, um, is administered in light of the fact that the reality that those types and shadows pointed to has arrived. Jesus has already arrived on the scene. He is the, he is the, um, the administrator of the New Covenant. Without the types and shadows, you see. And he has arrived on the world stage in the New Covenant age and has fulfilled the obligations uh, that he assumed when he entered into that covenant with the Father on our behalf in eternity past. And the writer of the Hebrews describes the exalted Christ 
as the guarantee or guarantor, you can say, of this last and best administration of that one covenant, the new covenant administration. But what exactly does Jesus guarantee in this better covenant administration, or best actually? What he's guaranteeing, folks, is what I already said in the point that uh, the first point. He's guaranteeing the covenant's effectiveness in getting the job done. And that job was reconciliation of sinners to a holy God who is also gracious and loving and forgiving. Jesus guaranteed that what God, the triune God, uh, in the covenant had promised to accomplish through Jesus, the covenant mediator, full and perpetual reconciliation of God's elect with him, that that promised event or uh, uh, promised work was accomplished. Never to be revisited. And so, what he is guaranteed, and he guaranteed that through Jesus did, uh, through his perfect sacrifice of himself. So he's the sacrifice, and he's also the high priest offering the sacrifice in the heavenly holy of holies. When this word that we hear quoted uh, in uh, by David in Psalm one ten verse four is uttered by the Father to the Son, and he as the Melchizedekan priest, he gets it done. Aaron didn't get it done, you see. And none of his descendants got it done. Oh yes, they did in ceremonial fashion. But the only reason people in the Old Testament were forgiven because they were looking to the true high priest who was yet to come, who Aaron was merely a picture of. Well, why is Jesus able to guarantee the effectiveness of God's promises to save a people for himself utterly and perfectly? Because, here's why Jesus is able to guarantee its effectiveness of his, his redemptive work. Because Jesus' installation as the Melchizedekan high priest was accomplished with this solemn oath. Verse 20 again. And inasmuch as it, and this is again is a reference to the um, the better hope by which we draw near to God, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, and then he goes on, point is, it was with an oath. Not without is a double negative. So it was with an oath. That's why Jesus, what he accomplished, works for you and me. Fully and forever. Because an oath was given to Jesus when he presented himself and his life as a sacrifice for us in our place. God made an oath. And this was not the case for the the Levitical priests who were installed solely on the basis of law, which we read of in verse 16. He was talking about, the. I'll start in verse 15, and this is clear still, if another high priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, that's a reference to Jesus, but then he says, 
who has become such not on the basis of a physical, of a law of physical requirement, which is the way the Levitical priests were selected, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So he, so Jesus, uh, the, the Levitical priests, they were installed on the basis of legal uh, requirements given through the Mosaic law. But there's no mention of an oath in those sections of the Mosaic law deal, that deal with the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. And this is the very point that the writer here is making in verse 21 when he says, For they indeed became priests without an oath. The Old Testament guys did. Aaron and his descendants. But he, Jesus, with an oath. He's underlining, underscoring that point. This is the, this is what's the big deal, is the oath. However, the priesthood of which Jesus was the sole representative, his was, unlike the, uh, the uh, Aaronic priests, his was established on the basis of an oath, and not just anybody's oath, but the oath of the first person of the Godhead to him. God the Father is the one who swore as we read there in verse 17, quoting from Psalm 110, Thou art a priest forever. This is in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 17. Thou art a priest forever. The first part of that verse is uh, found in verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And here's the quote again, Thou art a priest forever. That's in verse 21. So they, they're part, verse 17 covers part of the verse, and verse 21 covers the other part of the verse. But that's what, that's what makes it, God himself said this, the first person of the Godhead made this decision that you, this priesthood, this final priesthood would stand and it would always stand. And it would always get the job done because of who the priest is, the high priest is, Jesus, the God, man, who lived, died, rose again, and was now exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so God made this decision, and therefore the decision cannot change because God does not change. Ever. In any way. His purposes, His intentions, His plans are eternal. They cannot change, or they're not eternal. Then He's not God. The whole house of cards collapses. Meaning the doctrine of, of God collapses. No, it's the oath. The significance of this oath. William Lane in his commentary says, the divine oath verifies the absolute reliability, or the word I used in the, in the point, effectiveness. The divine oath verifies the absolute reliability of the priesthood of Christ upon which the hopes of the Christian community are anchored. End quote. The oath serves as God the Father's, and yes, the Son's and the Spirit as well, but particularly that God the Father is in view here. The oath serves as God's inviolable guarantee that the priestly mediatorial work of Christ 
accomplished by Him under the terms of the covenant of grace for you, if you're a believer, that oath, excuse me, uh, that, um, yeah, that work, that priestly mediatorial work, not only cannot fail, it is final. It is unchangeable. You know what the implication of this is? Your full and complete salvation, not just your justification, but your sanctification and your place in heaven glorified as a saint in heaven without sin. That whole rubric there of salvation, your full, your complete salvation, is absolutely certain. Not because of anything that you do or don't do, or I do or don't do, but because of what Christ has done and is still doing by way of intercession on your behalf and mine. He is interceding for you. He is talking to the Father and defending you and covering your sins that you committed this morning and will commit later today and covering it with His blood and reminding the Father of His blood and His life that was shed for you. If you're trusting in Christ, that's the you I'm talking to. If you're not trusting completely and only in Jesus Christ alone, who is 100% God and 100% man, and the only source of salvation from hell for a sinner, and we're all sinners, if you're not trusting in Him, this currently doesn't apply to you. You are actually still under the wrath of God and will be forevermore. That's what hell is, the place of God's eternal wrath. And you will go there. We all deserve to go there, but you will go there unless you flee to Jesus and let Him, if I use the word let, I don't like that, but you know what I mean, take hell for you. And also live the perfect life that you need to be seen by God as having in order to be forgiven by God. In order to be welcomed into His presence. And only Jesus can accomplish that. And you must trust in Him alone. Not in any way, in anything you've done or will do or can do, including even trusting. You can't trust in your trusting. Or you're trusting in yourself. And you're not trusting in Jesus. And that doesn't cut it. You've got to trust in the object of your faith. But he has to be the object of your faith or you are exposed to the infinite wrath of God, which you deserve and I deserve and we all deserve. But you will get if you have not fled to Christ when you take your last breath. If you've already fled to Christ, all that's gone. There is no wrath. There is no anger judicial anger. And it will never return to you. God is not angry at you from his place in the courtroom of heaven. But it's all dependent. Your, your, your salvation in Christ is all dependent upon what Christ did 
and upon the Father's oath that he will accept his mediatorial, Jesus' mediatorial work on your behalf forever. We're going to get to point two today, this morning. This, um, and by the way, let me ask you this, uh, to finish up that point. Why did the triune God not only send the Son... Why did, the, why did the Godhead send the Son to be your substitute so that you would not experience hell? This is as close to hell as you'll ever get because of the Son. Why did he send Jesus to do what he did and then also swear not to change his mind about making, uh, uh, causing Jesus' mediatorial work to be forever applied to you? Why did he do that? Because he loves you. That's why. Infinitely loves you. And me. Praise the Lord. Not because you're lovable. Not because you're such a beautiful young lady or a handsome young man or a sage individual not because of your parents, family tree, because you're an American that goes to church. None of that. Because God loves you. It's the only reason this happened. You must have Christ, though. You must have Jesus Christ as your only hope. Or you will not gain the benefit of what Jesus did as your high priest. Do you have Christ? Flee to Christ if you don't have him. Now. Well, secondly, not only have we seen here the supreme efficacy of Jesus' priestly mediation on your behalf assures you, uh, you're assured of that supreme efficacy by the Father's oath, but also the ceaseless nature of Jesus' priestly mediation on your behalf is assured by Jesus' immortality. This is why Jesus' mediation now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and uh, what he did on the cross, why that is ceaselessly applied to you because he is an eternal high priest. Verses 23 through 25 makes that point. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. There it is. Got to be through him. Since he always lives Make intercession for them. Here the writer explores the significance of the word forever uh, in the Father's oath to the Son recorded in Psalm 110, verse 4. He's thinking about that word forever, and he begins by reminding his readers, and the Holy Spirit is reminding us through this passage, of the way things were under the Old Testament priesthood, under the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 23 again. Uh, uh, they existed in many numbers, the Old Testament priests did, high priests, because, why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing to minister 
as a mediator. They were prevented by that. The Aaronic high priests um, were God's earthly mediators during uh, between himself and the people of Israel. And that high priest who ministered in Israel, Old Testament Israel, his mediation on their behalf, on Israel's behalf, was absolutely essential to the maintenance of their right relationship with God under the Mosaic administration of grace. Now, actually, again, it's who they typified that was essential, but it had to be through Aaron that people saw Christ, if I can put it that way, under the Old Testament economy. And yet Aaron and his high priestly descendants had this very nasty habit of dying. And every time the high priest died, the ministry of that priesthood on behalf of God's people was disrupted. And the truth is, the only reason that the Aaronic priesthood didn't end with the death of Aaron himself, that first uh, uh, and most famous of high priests, um, the reason it didn't uh, end on the, with the death of Aaron was on account of the fact that um, the Mosaic law, God in it, had made provision for a succession of priests to replace him and resume his mediatorial work that Aaron had done uh, himself. Indeed, uh, the first century um, Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us in his work, Antiquities of the Jews, that a total of 83, I don't know how he knew this, but apparently he did, 83 high priests ministered in the Old Testament era uh, for the uh, between God and the, uh, and the Jewish people, between um, the inception of the Aaronic priesthood in around 1440, 1440 B.C., and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. There were apparently about 83 priests, high priests rather. And according to the writer of the Hebrews, this repeated need to replace dead high priests powerfully testifies to the limitations and imperfections and shallowness of the Aaronic priesthood that was part and parcel of the Mosaic administration and the Davidic also of the um, one covenant of grace. Well, in stark contrast to the temporary nature of the mediation provided by each of the many Levitical or Aaronic priests is the mediation of the great Melchizedekan priest, the Lord Jesus, verse 24. But he, referring to Christ, on the other hand, he became uh, uh, he, uh, because he abides forever, in other words, is immortal, holds his priesthood permanently. You see the connection there? The, the, the eternality of the Son, the immortality, eternality of the Son, is what guarantees that the priesthood that he, is, uh, uh, that he uh, personifies is is permanent, is not going to change. Because he doesn't change. He's, his ministry, his high priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father on your behalf right now is never going to be hindered or disrupted, disrupted by his death. Because he's not going to die. His mediation on your behalf is perfect and never ending. Isn't that good news, folks? 
Isn't that great? Glorious news? When hell is what I deserve and you do too. His wrath. Nothing but grace. Nothing but love for eternity. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And the reason, of course, this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway in in one sentence. The reason why his priestly ministry um, continues forever is because of who he is. He's the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. And because he is God, he has no beginning and can have no end. His life is, to use the the words of uh, the writer in verse 16, indestructible. And so the point that the writer and the Holy Spirit through him is trying to drive home to you and me in this section is because our high priest, Jesus, is an everlasting high priest, a forever high priest, he is able to secure everlasting salvation, reconciliation to God for all those on whose behalf he officiates in the heavenly holy of holies. It's eternal. Your salvation is eternal because He is the eternal High Priest. And that salvation that He purchased began the moment you put your trust in Christ. It doesn't begin when you get to heaven. It has already begun. And it will not end if you are His child. If you are clinging to Him with a mustard seed of real faith. So, if you are a Christian, you never have to worry about the possibility of losing your right standing before God or your heavenly inheritance on account of a failure of Jesus to remain at his priestly post, if I can put it that way. Not going to happen. You don't have to worry about that. He will never, ever cease his mediation, his intercession on your behalf before the Father's throne because he is God, the God-man who lived and died and rose again and ascended on your behalf as your substitute. And this means that All the guilt of your sins, all the shame associated that you feel with on account of your sins, for all the sinful things that you have done already or will yet do, will uh, those that guilt and that shame will never cease to be forgiven by God. And forgotten by God. I'll close with Jeremiah 31-34, which says this. This is that famous exposition in the Old Testament of the new covenant, of the promise of the new covenant. And he says in verse 33, but this is the covenant. So remember, this is about the new covenant. He says, this is the covenant which will make which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And here's the point I want you to hear. The Lord says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, God can't forget anything, actually. God's perfect. He can't forget anything, especially since he's decreed everything. But what this means is, it means that God, it's as if God forgets your sin. He never brings it to mind again. He never holds it against you ever again. That's, it's tantamount to God forgetting, even though God can't forget, um, because he's God. But that's how, that's how good the gospel is, the gospel of grace is. And that's how good your God is, and how wonderful his love is. You need to remember these things, folks. We need to remember these things daily. I don't very often say it, but it's true. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. If you're here again, if you never trusted Christ as your only hope of being forgiven, please, please come to Christ. He is happy to forgive all those who will come on bended knee in their hearts and saying, Oh Lord, I'm a sinner deserving of your wrath. Save me. He will save you, but you must come and you must trust him. Do that today if you've never done it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this.